from 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. Come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like the living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, the stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and the stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received it. Thank you, Callan. Uh, folks, that's not an easy passage to read, and he did a great job with it. Somebody, can y'all give him an affirmation for that? I, you, you, you set out to do your best with things. I don't know if you've experienced this, and you, you just can't seem to quite get over the hurdles uh, sometimes. But I want to tell you that I messed up this week in the Lake Jackson update. I announced a very special anniversary that took place on Friday, Bob and Wanda Long. Um, you don't want to know the whole story about how many ways I messed this up, but what you heard was that I said they had only been married for 50 years. That's wrong. They have earned five more years and have been married for 55 years. Bob and Wanda, would you please stand and let us acknowledge you? I just want to re-say what I said uh, in the update because I know that only about 50 people watch the updates. Um, they're, they're a couple that bless the Lord individually, each of them, with their own unique set of gifts. But what's really been neat to watch, and I'll ask forgiveness, I can't remember how many years you've been here. Has it been close to seven, eight? Is that about right? Thirteen years? I've only been here 12, and you came after I got here. No, okay, all right, good to know, good to know. Once again, you set out to do good things, and you just keep falling on your face. But what I have noticed is that not only have they blessed us individually with the unique gifts that they have individually, but as a couple, there's a profound sense in which the two of them do ministry together and bless us together. And uh, their marriage is a blessing to them, their marriage is a blessing to their family, and their marriage is a blessing to our congregation. And let's affirm that their marriage is a blessing to the kingdom of God. Amen? Again, give your affirmation to Bob and Wanda. It doesn't show up in the translation that we put on the screen, but if you look at some other translations, that last phrase in the, in the scripture that Callan read so well could potentially be a little verse from a song or possibly just a little rhyme that, is, that, Paul puts, uh, geez, that Peter puts in there. It better get better as far as that is concerned. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And, and even in English, you can kind of hear the rhythm 
of it as if it were a song. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is language that is seated in uh, what Peter puts together there as comparing the church to the people of Israel. The same words, you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, are words that were applied to Israel at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. And the prophets will bring up at least an illusion on a regular basis. God chose you. Don't forget your choosing. And Peter wants to say to us, do not forget that you have been chosen. That you are a special people. That once you weren't a people and now you are not just a people, but you are a people of God. And once you had not received mercy. And here is the key reminder. Because in many ways, the Jews of Jesus' day, and to a certain extent, 60, 70 years later, as Peter writes to these folks, these people, the Jews had forgotten that their calling as a people was not something that was based on how special they were and how wonderful they were, but was based solely and completely on the mercy of God. Somebody say amen. And in reality, sometimes we might forget that the fact that we are joined together on this service on YouTube, or we're joined together here in person in this place, and we may think that, oh, God thinks we're really special. No, what God really thinks is that these are the people that have accepted the mercy that I have, that I have offered to everyone. They have accepted it, and they've accepted the responsibility to go with it, that comes with it. It's a powerful calling. It's a powerful thing to be chosen by God. Shakespeare's famous line is very appropriate here. A rose by any other name would still be... A rose by any other name would still be a... And it would still smell as sweet. We look at the names that are applied in the New Testament, and again, particularly this morning, we're going to look at some of the names that are applied to the church, or that which I last week introduced, the fellowship, that it is what we are, and if it's not completely what we are, it is definitely all about how we are. So, the first name that's applied to us, on that first day, when we kind of see the church as being founded, it is called the fellowship. They dedicated themselves to the teaching. And the people that dedicated themselves to the teaching of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus were called and were signaled out and acted into what was called the fellowship and then to also the breaking of bread together. Tying their lives together, unified under that new teaching of Christ as Son of God and Messiah, tied together in a fellowship that was anything really that, that was going to be expressed at that time that anybody had seen. How can this diverse group of people fit together? It must be something called a fellowship. And because they had that fellowship, they broke bread together, both in observing the, the table, the supper that we celebrate together, but also in the way that they shared common meals together. A little later in the book of Acts, we have this other label called the way. Chapter 9, uh, Paul gets letters to go to Damascus to persecute all the men and women who followed something called the way. And you can understand why they might say something like that. Because Jesus describes himself the way, the truth, and the life. 
And even the way those three things are stacked up, they're not necessarily independent. It is the way of truth and the way of life. And so those who follow Jesus might be identified as those of the way. You've heard that phrase before. It's not that the way was different than the fellowship. It was just a different description of what those people were doing. Arose by any other name. But you know the phrase over and over again that comes up throughout the New Testament. The church. You call yourselves a church. You call where you're going a church. You call what you're doing being church sometimes. You think of yourself as a church. This is a description that we are comfortable with and that we are familiar with. But where does it really come from? The church is a word and... Forgive me for this, please. It's a word that gets used all throughout Paul's letters. It is going to be used, even Jesus in Matthew chapter 18 will talk about the church, the members of the church. If there's a, a division or if there's a difference between members, two members of the church. And so we see that the Gospels not only tell the story of Jesus, but they tell the story of Jesus to apply it to the life of the church. Matthew's the only one who will use that term in his liter literature. Paul will carry it on, and even John, as he closes out the New Testament and eagerly anticipates the new creation that's going to come, talks about the church. Well, I don't do this very often, but I'm going to throw it up here, so forgive me ahead of time. The word that we translate church is a word that you pronounce, ekklesia, in the original language, in the Koine Greek, ekklesia. Do you mind saying it with me? Ekklesia. Okay. Ekklesia is an interesting word. And it is interesting that, in reality, as the New Testament writers began the process of saying, what are we going to call this thing that are the people who follow Jesus, the people who submit to the apostles' teaching, the people who engage in a unique and different kind of fellowship than we've ever known before, the people who are going to break bread together over Jesus Christ, what are we going to call this? Now, I need you to know that the easy answer would have been to say, it's exactly like what the Jews gather in, and we'll call it the synagogue. Paul, when he goes out on his missionary journeys, he arrives in a town, and if there are enough Jews in that town, ten families is what is thought of, then he would have gone to the first place he would go, would have been to the synagogue, to preach the gospel of the Messiah of God, the people of Israel fulfilled in Christ Jesus as its new Messiah and now God's chosen people as those who follow Jesus, who not who submit to uh, the Mosaic law, as it were. But it would have been real easy because that's where they kind of first got associated. Well, those are the folks that came out of the synagogue. And they could even claim, and by the way, this is a common way that the New Testament writers talk. Peter is talking about the new Israel, the new called people of God are is the church, those who are following Jesus. So it would be almost logical to say, let's just call it the synagogue, the place where people get together to honor God, to read His Word, and to worship together. Sounds simple, correct? Except it seems in this one instance, 
They wanted to separate themselves from some Jewish tradition. And, by the way, this might also be logical as well. Because as many synagogues would accept Paul and the teaching of Jesus as the Messiah, you also know that almost all of them kicked him out so that they had somewhere else to go. So they need a word. Well, it's interesting. Ecclesia is a word that comes from five centuries before Christ. And it doesn't necessarily come from the Old Testament scriptures, although when the Old Testament is translated into Greek, the Hebrew into the Greek, the word ecclesia gets used on occasion, a few other operative words for some type of assembly. About five centuries before Jesus, in the Greek city-state, it was known, first of all, as the way that a, a army, a conscripted army, would be called out to defend the people. As there were less and less concerns, and by the way, they weren't, were no longer fighting for their independence, but instead were just kind of doing a little bit of self-rule under other kinds of, of leadership, they then began to call this ecclesia was this group of being called together to do the business of the city. It was an important group that, that kind of led the city, a little bit like the city council might be called in that way. But certainly... It was always a group of people that was singled out for a very special purpose, whether it was defending the homeland or whether it was ruling the homeland well, they were called out for a special purpose. Because what's interesting is, is the word ekklesia is in reality a combination of two words in Greek, one kaleo, which is to call, and by the way, we'll read it in just a second, when Jesus walked along the Sea of Galilee, he called Peter, Andrew, James, and John. You've heard that phrase before. Called out. The people who are called out to be unique. The people who are called out the way that Abraham was called out from all the peoples of the world. The way that the, the Jews, the way the Israelites under Moses were called out from all the other nations in the world to be God's special people. To be called out. I don't know so much as to defend the homeland as it is to stand up for Christ and his kingdom. The idea that we are called out to be a people who help the world be the best it can be. This is actually almost connected to the idea that when, Abraham, when Adam was, call, was made and he, God calls him and says, I need you to take care of this garden that I've placed you in. And there's a certain extent to which the church is called out to take care of this garden, this thorny, messed up garden called the world, but I need you to work in it. And I need you to work in it to bring about my good. So forgive me for that little journey into languages. But ultimately, what are we called out to do? Let's make a quick journey through the life of Christ, if you don't mind. First of all, Mark chapter 1, you recognize this, I mentioned it ago. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the, into the lake. They weren't just doing this for the fun of it, they were doing it because this was their profession. They were fishermen. Come follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. And their reaction, at once they left their net, their livelihood, to go and follow him. One thing had defined who they were, fishermen. Now they're going to be defined by following Jesus. Little did they know how much their life was going to change because of that decision to leave their nets behind. You and I are called before any other thing 
to follow Jesus. If we are to be the church, if we are to be the fellowship, there can't be anything else that we're following that's more important than Jesus. And there can't be anything that defines us more specifically than who Jesus is. I think sometimes we have the temptation to say, well, I'm a Texan, and that defines who I am. I wasn't born here, but I have grabbed that nomenclature for my own life. I got here about 15 months old. Not my fault that I was there. Dad was working on his Ph.D. in Iowa. Not my fault. Both born, they were both born in Texas, and they got me back here as fast as they could. I'm a Texan. Could it be that we ever get confused about, instead of saying, I follow Jesus first, we say, I'm an American first. And we somehow absorb some sort of sense that being American is the same as being a Christian. When in reality, we don't have to hear the story of America very long to recognize that the idea of power and that might makes right seldom if ever goes together with a crucified Savior and Lord. So it's who we are, followers of Jesus. So now let's go follow Jesus. Because see, what the first disciples did, maybe more than hearing the teaching of Jesus, although I'm sure they heard lots of conversations from Jesus, and sometimes where he would stop and make a very direct kind of teaching, but maybe above all else what they saw was the teaching. What they saw Jesus do taught them what it was that Jesus was trying to bring into the world and what he wanted people that followed him to do. Matthew chapter 8. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, and by the way, this is the mountainside of the Sermon on the Mount. He's just preached one of the longest sermons that we have recorded for us, if not the longest sermon. Came down from the mountainside, large crowds following him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before he before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Have you ever said, Lord, if you're willing? I think sometimes we stand in exactly that place. Lord, I've, I've, I've messed up. I have significant brokenness in my life, and I'm, I'm not sure that you even want me. And if you haven't felt that feeling, what I can guarantee you is that on every single day that you go out and go to the HEB or go to the Walmart or go to the Kroger or go to work, you will run into people who haven't necessarily rejected Jesus because they don't want to believe in a Messiah, but they have pushed Jesus away because they think their life is so broken, that their trauma is so great that surely he's not willing to have someone like me. And by the way, unfortunately, more times than not, the way people who call themselves by the name of Christ, the church, treat them affirms exactly that feeling. Jesus reached out his hand. And I love this. Could Jesus have just said, be healed? What we know is that he could, because he's done that before. That wasn't enough for this guy. He reached out and touched the man and then said, be clean. And notice that the touch precedes the cleansing. If we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to be people who are called out to be people to represent what Jesus looks like, then we're going to have to be folks 
that are not afraid of evil invading us when we get in its midst, but are willing to see ourselves touching the lives who don't have their life all together the way that God would want them to. They don't live in a way that seeks his blessing, but they desperately need what Jesus has to offer. Let's keep going. John chapter 4 tells the story of Jesus with a woman, a very unique woman. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? And the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Just think of all the power that's wrapped up in that one little statement. First of all, be sure, I didn't read the context, but Jesus is traveling through Samaria. Not something normally done by good Jewish people. By the way, particularly Jewish rabbis who were teachers. They would never lead their disciples into Samaritan territory because you might run up against one of them and have to rub elbows with them and you never want to do that. And that idea was so firmly planted in the psyche of that culture that you didn't want to touch them you didn't want to drink from the same water fountain as them. You wanted to be sure they were in the balcony of the auditorium instead of in the main seats. You didn't want to go to the same hospitals with them. You didn't want to have anything to do with them. And so even a conversation that might start off with, come serve me, is interrupted immediately by someone who knows the rules so well that she says, no way you should even be speaking to me. She's angry because people have told her she's not worthy and not good enough. And by the way, if you read the rest of the story, you know that it's more than her just being a woman and it's more than her just being a Samaritan. It has to do with her moral life. And Jesus won't play. He answered, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now think about this. Not only is he willing to give her living water, he's in Samaria and he still has access to living water and can give it to her wherever he is. Not only that, but it doesn't matter how broken her life is. His living water can overcome any of that brokenness. And number three, notice that he is not afraid of her anger and her hatred. I am willing to bring goodness and mercy and kindness no matter what kind of anger you want to throw back at me. I will go wherever there is a need for people who have living water. And maybe the thirstier they are, the more I want to be there. Let's keep reading. Jumping down to Luke chapter 6. But to you who are listening, I say, and by the way, that phrase doesn't just mean just the casual observer, those of you who are sitting out in the crowd. When he says, for those who, you who are listening, he means for those of you who are serious about this. You don't want to just hear these words, you want to do these words. But for you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. 
Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you in one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. If they're going to take advantage of you, you don't rise up in righteous indignation. You don't rise up and say, it's my right. Instead, you love and care for them however you can in that moment. And just when you think that these are just words that Jesus is speaking, what is he really going to do about it? Luke chapter 23 takes us to the cross, and they come to the place of the skull, and they crucified him there. Let's be sure who all they is included here. Jewish leadership who condemned him, Romans who were going to enact the death penalty, and every single person who has sinned against the reality of Jesus as Son of God and Messiah, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And you know what he said. Father, forgive those Jews who are continuing to shout curses at me. Forgive these Romans who've nailed my hands to this cross, beaten me, brought every abuse that they had ever wanted to bring on any Jew that they had gotten tired of because they lived, they were living in this place where nothing was like they wanted it to be. Forgive them that have in the past, that have today, and that will forever sin against you, Father. And hurt me. Forgive them. For they don't know what they're doing. Acts chapter 11 will kind of put a cap on it. And say it was in Antioch. That the disciples were first called Christians. And I will tell you that for most of my life. When I've looked at that phrase. It's just kind of meant somebody who follows Jesus. A little Jesus. Unfortunately the word Christ is not the word Jesus. The word Christ is Messiah. Those who were bringing in the reign of God, those who were following the chosen one of God, those who were doing not just what Jesus as a man did, but Jesus as God's son, as the one who was going to change the world. That's who they looked like, and that's what they were doing. That is what they were called out to do and be. So what is being a called out people? Three quick implications, if you will. First of all, you heard this one last week. If we're going to be called out the way Jesus wants us to be called out, then there is absolutely no way that we're going to never allowing our fellowship to be defined by the limits of church times and church places. The best things that Jesus did were not when he was standing on the, on the mountain and preaching that wonderful sermon. By the way, am I thankful for the sermon? Yes. But to a certain extent, the sermon is less full of meaning and power if he doesn't come down from the mountainside and just kind of happen to run into somebody who was untouchable. That without Jesus is not too different from me. You see, we cannot be defining who we are as the people of God, who we are as the called out ones, the ecclesia, the church, 
as the fellowship who is about the business of Jesus, we cannot define that by what happens in this time and what happens in this place. And I'm going to keep coming back to that. Secondly, if we're to be a called out people, we're going to have to be a people who are finding our way into the lives of those who are not the right kind of people. Well, he's just not the right kind of person. Well, she's just not the right kind of person. Now, I want to be sure and say here, these are not the people that you build your fellowship around, that you build your, your intimacies around. But the idea that you isolate your life so much into the church things that you are not involved and you're not looking for ways to get involved in the lives of people who haven't seen Jesus the way you've seen him and haven't experienced his mercy the way you've experienced them, then you're missing what Jesus did on a day-in, day-out basis. And while you may not call them the right kind of people, we always have categories that our minds put people in almost instantaneously. We had a son named Drew who tended to have a difficulty between what a thought went in his head and what a word came out. And when you went to the grocery store, you had to be real quick to put your hand on his mouth because he had lived in a group of people who did things the way he thought things were supposed to be done. He went to church with a group of people who did things the way things were supposed to be done. And when he saw people that weren't doing the things the way he thought they ought to be done, he was pretty quick to identify it. I'm not sure that I should feel all that good about how quickly he could say them as opposed to how can we help. Finally, if we're going to be a called out people, we have to let grace flow out of us the way God has poured it into us. Somebody say amen. I don't know where I would be without Jesus. I might still clean up pretty good. I might still have enough charisma to kind of be able to make my way in life. But what I know is that life would be empty without Jesus. And this is not something that I get to stand up and say, look how special I am. What this does is say, who have I invited into that love, into that mercy, into that grace, and into that kindness? There's one more come out that I want you to hear from John chapter 11. You might know what this is if you know the story. Lazarus, come out. Now, by the way, the word come out there is not ecclesia, just so you know. Don't come be church. But isn't it amazing how the way church, ecclesia, called out, and those who would be raised from the death of sin through the waters of baptism are called out. I don't know where you are in your life, but I can promise you that God has more through Jesus Christ. 
And you say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. I've been baptized. I read my Bible all day. I pray. Good. I'm thankful for that. I will promise you God has more. And the question is whether you've said, Spirit, come and fill me so that I can be the more that you want me to be. Not because I'm so good, but because you're so wonderful. If you're with us on YouTube, feel free. If there's something that you wish to, some way that we can help you to become more of what God wants you to be, you can send that request to that number. We'll find someone that will be glad to enter into relationship and conversation with you. So the question is whether we're ready to move from life, from death to life, or maybe just the question is are we ready to move from some of the life God wants to even more of the life God wants? Won't you come? Come out.